the way I was actually introduced to Crestline was actually through the Crounces. And I've actually known the Crounces for many, many, many years. First, I've, I met his, uh, Jamie's mother first while I was serving as a student missionary in Haiti back in the late 90s. Uh, she came out during the time they're actually living in Michigan, and they're bringing me steps to Christ. And also another book called Porpo Papa Porpoqua. And so we're kind of handing out to many of the individuals within the community. Um, but it's through that relationship that I've come to know and actually love this church. It's nice and small and very, very personal. Um, a little bit of my background. I have served in the mission field for the last 15 years. I have served in Africa for 10 years, um, specifically in Zambia, where I was overseeing the healthcare sector for uh, the Seventh-day Adventist uh, Church in Zambia. Uh, we have about 15 healthcare institutions out there, and then from there moved over to Malawi, where I was the chief executive officer of Malmulo Hospital. I don't know how many of you all know Malmulo Hospital. Malmulo Hospital is one of our oldest mission hospitals within our church. And then from there, I was ready to come back to the States. I said, God, I want normal. <laughs> and so uh, I came back, and then shortly after that, got the call to go to Port-au-Prince, Haiti. And so I was in Port-au-Prince, Haiti for about three years, serving as the chief executive officer of Haiti Adventist Hospital. And I can tell you that there's nothing normal about that. <laughs> but I, more than anything else, it has been a rich experience to be able to serve God. And it's so interesting that I don't know how many of you all, though, as Christians, that despite the simple fact of being in the church, does not necessarily guarantee us eternal life. Simply by going through the process every single day does not necessarily guarantee us that we're going to enter those pearly gates. This morning's topic is, some, is a topic that's very, very personal to me. Um, because I think it it gets to the gets to the essence of who we are and some of the pitfalls that we find ourselves in as Christians, especially as Seventh-day Adventists. And the topic is who are we? Now, as we begin to take a look at the political economic landscape that we're currently in right now, it is very clear that there is a greater force at work. And there is a shaking that is taking place, and I believe that what God is trying to get us to understand that, hey, listen, time is wrapping up on this earth. And as I kind of look around, especially as a Christian, I sometimes wonder, what is he going to find when he comes back? Is he going to find a people that is wanting? Is he going to find a people that is lacking? Is he going to find a people that is deficient? Or is he going to find a people that is ready and eager for his appearing? As we enter to the word of God this morning, I encourage you to seriously consider where your standing is with God. Let's bow our heads right quick. Father God, I thank you, Lord, for today. I thank you, dear God, for the opportunity of being called a child of God. 
And despite us, Heavenly Father, we may not have always acted like your children. You still extend your love and your grace to us, Lord. We ask, Heavenly Father, as we go through this morning's little talk day, God, that, uh, that you will convict our hearts, Heavenly Father, and that you will show us, Heavenly Father, the state of ourselves. And then after it's all said and done, dear God, we ask, Lord, that you please abide in us so that we will reflect your character and your likeness. In this name we worthy name. Amen. Today's text, Luke chapter 22, verses 31 through 34. Simon, Simon, Satan, and this is coming from the NIV, this text. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to where? Death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. In the beginning of this chapter, we find that it is nearing time for the festival of unleavened bread or Passover. The chief priests and the teachers of the law have been plotting as to how they were going to go about assassinating Christ. One of the biggest challenges that they found was the fact that Christ was always surrounded by people. And so it made it extremely difficult for them to get their hands on Christ and kill him. As I was, as I was reading uh, the Spirit of Prophecy, what is interesting is that Oftentimes when we talk about crowds, we think of probably crowds of 10 or 15 or maybe about 100 or so that were actually following Christ. But the reality was, was that Christ was such a magnet that he was drawing stadium-sized crowds to hear him. If you consider that you have in one of his sitting 5,000 and another one of his sitting 7,000, Christ everywhere, and those are just two examples. But if you realize that as Christ moved, he was drawing stadium-sized crowds to hear him. And I believe that's part of the reason why, basically, he didn't stay behind the pulpit within a church, because there's probably no church that was able to handle the sheer volume of people that wanted to be next to him. We read that in verse 3, it tells us that Satan entered into Judas, one of the Christ's 12 disciples, and he devised a plan with the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard as to the most opportune time when Christ will be alone. They were very happy to hear this plan and agreed on the amount they were going to pay him and then waited for the opportunity when Judas was going to deliver Jesus into their hands without there being a crowd around. See, one of the reasons why they didn't lay hands on him was because they were afraid of reprisals from the crowd. If they would go after Jesus, then there was a potential for the crowd to get violent and lay their hands actually on the priest. So they sort of kind of stayed back 
But now we find that Satan enters into who? Judas. Enters into Judas. Judas strategizes and plans with him. And because Judas is in the inner circle of Christ, he knows when Christ will be most vulnerable. And when he was going to be alone. So he reveals to them that information. What do we oftentimes think when we think of Judas? I don't know. I, 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 I tend to like to interact, if that's okay. What do you, I, I know what I thought about Judas when I was growing up, but what did you think of Judas? If you had to describe Judas growing up, what would you see? What would his characteristics and likeness be? Anyone? A, a traitor. But what would he look like? Sneaky guy, exactly. Any other guy? Anyone else? Oftentimes, go ahead. Okay. Oftentimes, I would think that growing up as a, as a child, because of the way that we had labeled Judas, I thought of him as a messy kind of guy, a guy that was really, really um, sneaky, who was unkept, who didn't, who, uh, he looked like uh, some of the petty thieves. But when I actually read the spirit of prophecy, it says in chapter 30 of Desire of Ages, he ordained 12, it says, the disciples were anxious that Judas should become one of their number. He was of a commanding appearance, a man of keen discernment and executive ability. And they recommended him to Jesus as one who would greatly assist them in his work. They were surprised that Jesus received him so coolly. When he approached Christ to join his inner circle, he did so earnestly and sincerely. Jesus, or Judas, looked like us. Matter of fact, not only did he look like us, if he were alive today, we would vote him into leadership position within our own church. He was a man that we could respect. He was a man that we, we would believe that represented who we stood for. Matter of fact, Judas was one of those disciples that Christ didn't go out to look for. He was actually introduced to Judas through his disciples. Why? Because the disciples had so much respect for Judas. They said that, Christ, if you are going to build your kingdom, this is the kind of man that is going to help you accomplish it. Judas. Nothing at all would I have envisioned of Judas. But it's interesting how Christ, what, what Christ did and how he interacted. Christ with Judas interacted very coolly. He was almost kind of cold or distant. And the disciples kind of felt that that was a little bit weird. I've got to keep my eye on, the, on my watch. They found that it was a little bit weird because Christ generally is not a cold kind of person, especially when he meets people. But Christ saw right through 
Truly, despite how nice he looked, and despite the recommendations that came along with him, Christ saw right through that. Back in 1998, as I had mentioned, I was a student missionary in Haiti. And on this one Sunday, I woke, I woke up to um, get ready for the day, and so I, I wanted to go and prepare my, my breakfast. So I headed off to the uh, caf- cafeteria. But right before I even heading off to the cafeteria, I see my roommate, and my roommate is right next to uh, a young lady, and they're sitting on the stoop. And this young lady was a lady that was actually coming from another country to visit her sister, who was a missionary in Haiti. So they're sitting there, they're sitting there, they're sitting there. And then all of a sudden, my roommate gets up, and then he leaves. And the young lady starts to cry. And she's crying, and she's crying hard. And so I'm a little bit confused because my roommate is a, is a nice guy. Why would she actually be crying? So my roommate gets up, and he walks off. I'm like, man, this is really strange. So I go over, and I sit right next to the young lady. I'm like, are you okay? You know, what's going on? She says, I have, the reason I came to Haiti is because I have six months to live. I'm dying of cancer. And I've come to let my sister know that I'm dying. It's like, your sister doesn't even know. She's like, no, the sister who's a missionary said, oh, man. And I just, and she, she went on to say, I, I told you, your, your roommate, and he just walked off and like he didn't care. I said, man, that is really strange. My roommate walking off like he doesn't even care. So I sat with the young lady from that morning all the way till about 6 p.m. that evening. Why she just cried and cried, and I was heavy. Then later on that evening, myself and one of the other missionaries walked back up to the house, and uh, you know, I, I went back home and I started praying. I said, "God, please help, uh, you know, this missionary, because it's going to be hard once they actually hear this information." The next morning, I ran, run into the missionary, the missionary herself, and I said. I am so sorry. You know, is everything okay? Your sister told me yesterday what uh, the reason why she, she came. She said, did my sister tell you that she has six months to die, six months to live, that she's dying of cancer? I said, yes, and I am so sorry. She says, my sister has tried to check herself into the hospital six times. And every single time they tell her to leave, but she doesn't, she's not dying. My sister's schizophrenic. Then it all began to make sense. My roommate acted very coldly towards her and got up and walked away because he knew her true condition. I didn't understand from the outside because I'm just looking at this situation from the outside. Likewise, it was the same with Christ. When he came across Judas, he was able to see what we couldn't see from the outside. And so, and so, in the Desire of Ages, chapter 76 of Judas, it says, Judas was highly regarded with 
regarded. And today we're going to look at two profiles. We're going to look at the profile of Judas, and we're also going to take a look at the profile of Simon, Peter. So Judas was highly regarded by the disciples and had great influence over them. He himself had a high opinion of his own qualifications and looked upon his brethren as greatly inferior to him in judgment and ability. Judas was blinded to his own weakness of character, and Christ placed him where he would have an opportunity to see and correct this. Yet when Judas was with the disciples, he was not insensible to the beauty of the character of Christ. He felt the influence of that divine power which was drawing souls to the Savior. He who came not to break the bruised reed, nor quench the smoking flax, would not repulse this soul, while even one desire was reaching toward the light. The, the Savior, read to the heart, Savior read the heart of Judas. He knew the depths of iniquity, to which, unless delivered by the grace of God, Judas would sink. And connecting this man with him, he placed him where he might day by day be brought into contact with the outflowing of his own unselfish love. It's interesting how we can be in the atmosphere where God is. We can spend day and night with him. We could even eat with him. And still not be transformed. Still not truly be influenced by him. And to me, that is a very, very sobering thought. That I can serve God as a missionary and still not make it to heaven. That I can serve on church boards and still not have my name accounted. And so this is where we actually find ourselves. But what is interesting about all of this is that even though Christ knew Judas's situation, he still was patient. He still made sure that he shared the same love that he shared with everybody else with him because the ultimate goal really was to save Judas, even though he knew that Judas struggled with iniquity. But that same love and that same grace that was, was shared with all the other disciples was not deficient when it came to Judas as well. Judas was a disciple who heard the words of Christ spoken daily, an individual who stood in the presence of God the Son, a person who Christ purposefully opened himself up, allowing Judas to see and know his most vulnerable moment. Yet with all of that, Judas had allowed Satan to fully take control and lead him. This is one of the biggest challenges I think that we actually find nowadays. The challenge that Judas has is that he is very smart, and he knows that. And that because of that smartness, he believed that he could outsmart even Christ himself. Judas, when he betrayed Christ, and he went to, when he went to the, the, the chief priests and he went to the elders, when he went to betray Christ, 
he was playing more of a game of chess than anything else. Judas never meant, and I want you guys to hear me all the way out. Judas never meant for Christ to be actually captured. When he was going to sell Jews, when Judas was going to sell Christ out, he honestly believed that Christ was going to what? Escape. So, as Judas is very, very crafty, he says, hey, there's a way that I can make money. At the same time, Christ will still escape, and everybody's going to be okay. And so the deal was made, but the problem is that Christ never escaped. And if you look at basically Luke chapter 4, verses 30, you find examples of where Christ did what? He escaped. There were many times they were coming after him, but he was always able, whether it's through a miracle or what have you, he was always able to escape through the crowd. And so Judas said, ah, he's going to do the same thing again. But Satan knew difference. Remember, Satan was the one who actually entered into Judas and caused him to do it. While Judas is thinking one thing, Satan has a separate plan. So, the discussion continues. They're at Passover right now, the Passover meal. Jesus sends Peter and John out to begin preparing for the Passover meal. And after receiving instructions from Christ, they found that most of the preparations had already been done. However, they needed to finalize on the process for the Passover meal. The hour came when they are in the upper room, and he began to break bread with his disciples, all the while prepping them about the events that were to soon take place. After he talks about the cup of the new covenant, he then highlights the fact that someone at the table was going to betray them. Then the conversation slowly drifts as to who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God. It is interesting that this conversation then comes about. What is very clear about the disciples is that Unfortunately, while Christ probably spent about three years with them, none of them were converted. Very, very slow to understand. <laughs> because they were still thinking about this earthly kingdom that Christ was going to set up. So it wasn't only Judas that had a problem. It was all the disciples that actually had a problem. Let's then, and I'm going to go ahead and skip a, a little bit now. Take a look at Simon Peter, the profile of Simon Peter. Simon Peter was also very self-confident. He was also aggressive, and he was bold. I like to think of probably Simon Peter, if he had a temperament type, it probably would be choleric. How many of you all know choleric? Yes. Cholerics are those individuals that are, they oftentimes are the visionaries. They're, 
they are very goal-driven. And sometimes, in the process of going after the goals, goal, they will trample everybody in the process. But they will obtain their objective. Some clerics, cl at least clerics that are not under the, the um, un under God's power. But clerics that are under God's power are goal-driven, and they also take into account the needs of people. But here we find Simon Peter. He made a lot of mistakes and was often corrected by Christ. Christ, in his loving way, worked with him to keep his self-confidence in check and to teach him what it meant to be humble, obedient, and to trust. However, over the years that Christ worked with him, he didn't fully grasp the lessons. Simon Peter had an unconverted heart while being in the very presence of God as well. However, despite his unconverted heart, Christ did not leave him to be sifted by Satan, but God prayed for him that his faith may not fail, and when he was to turn back and be converted, he will strengthen the brothers. Here we find two individuals, both a part of Christ's inner circle. I struggled to find initially from the outside how they were even different. They both seemed on the outside to exhibit, exhibit the same mannerisms. They both were leaders and ambitious. Both individuals were confident, and they believed in their education and their skills, and their talent, and their relationships, and their nearness to God. And they believed that their nearness to God made them marketable to be considered as leaders of what was perceived as Christ's earthly kingdom. Both believed that they were right in their approach. They were both individuals whom Christ worked tirelessly to show his love for. Yet both were terribly flawed and failed to comprehend Christ's vision and mission for them and his church. So what sets these two apart? Simon Peter's ability to understand that his relationship with Jesus wasn't quite what he thought it was. And that's one of them. It's the simple fact that Simon Peter, after he real realized that he had denied Christ three times, reality set in, and he realized that this love and this passion that I have for Christ was all fictitious. Because at a moment's notice, when things get difficult, I can sell an individual who I thought was my close friend out. It's also the difference between a heart that is hardened and one that is broken. Simon Peter, while having many of the same qualities, had a repentant heart, one that was open to the Holy Spirit. There's a, there's a little phrase that I ran across that says, what lies beneath the surface helps to sustain what's above. If beneath the surface you have not deliberately built a foundation with God, it will be revealed on the surface. I'm going to try to speed up a little bit. And it's interesting that in verse 35, Jesus, understanding that his time and his disciples was near, 
says to his disciples, when I send you without a purse, when I sent you without a purse, bag or sandals, did you lack anything? And the disciples say what? Nothing. He said to them, but now if you have a purse, do what? Take it. And also if you have a bag, and also a bag, and if you don't have a sword, what? Do what? Sell your cloak and buy what? A sword. Again, this shows the state of the disciples. Here we find Christ understanding that his time now on this earth is short, and he is about to leave. And up to this point, Christ was able to pretty much protect them. They had all the food that they needed. He was able to go to protect them physically as well. The disciples had their faith and trust in him because they saw all the miracles that he was able to do. But now Christ is leaving. And what he's saying is that, hey, listen, guys. It's time for you all to go and pick up everything that you put down, including your swords. Because he knew that their faith was limited. Sobering. While he was speaking, a crowd came up, and the man who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Again, as Christians, we look at Judas and we look down upon him for betraying Christ. How could we do that when so many times we do the same thing? What separates us from Judas is only a choice. The choice that isn't led by the Holy Spirit. A choice that places our own self-interest over Christ. A choice that considers our needs, our desires before God's. In 52, he says, Then Jesus said to the chief priest officers of the temple guard and the elders who had come for him, Am I leading a rebellion? that you have come with swords and clubs. Every day I was with you in the temple courts, and you did not lay a hand on me. But this is your hour when darkness reigns. The chief priests, the officers of the temple guard, and the elders were the ones who came for Christ. Which is an oxymoron. This is oxymoron. It's interesting that the church folk, and I know that we oftentimes talk about this, but the church folk, are the ones who came for Christ. These were the ones that wanted to assassinate Christ. It wasn't the prostitute. It wasn't the drunkard. It wasn't even the backslider. Some respect. But they were individuals that looked like This morning, it is so important that we understand that regardless of how much education we've accumulated over the years and what our relationships may be and how many mission trips we've actually taken, 
and all the good that we've actually thought that we've done, doesn't matter the type of clothes that you actually wear, none of that matters when it all comes down to whether we have a working and true relationship with Jesus Christ. We can potentially fool ourselves if we think that looking like this is enough. I have gone to all Adventist schools. My father worked at the General Conference. My mother worked at Washington Adventist Hospital. I'm a product of Adventist education. Christian education, but specifically Adventist education. But more than anything else, what I've realized is that it means nothing if Christ does not know me. So I want to encourage each and every one of you all that first of all, God has not left you. That despite whatever decision or whatever challenge that you've, you've gone through in your life, Christ has not left you. And he's still extending that hand today. You can still get it right. The gates are still open. So my prayer for you today is that you think about where you actually stand with Christ. And a lot of us actually know. We, we oftentimes know. I know when I'm far from Christ, despite when I have a tie on. Many of us actually know. But we need to take inventory of our life, and if we are found wanting, we need to ask God to come into our hearts and abide in us. And to teach us how we can abide in him. How many of us accept the word of God today? Amen? Please bow your heads. Father God, we want to, Heavenly Father, learn how to truly have a relationship with you. We do not want to pretend, Heavenly Father. And many times we find ourselves pretending, dear God, because that is what our environment requests. Our environment sometimes requires to fake it until we actually make it. But we understand, Heavenly Father, there's no faking when it comes to eternity. There's no faking when it comes to a true and living and working relationship with you. If we have erred, dear God, we ask that you please forgive us and that you set us back on the right track, dear God. And once we are converted, Heavenly Father, may we too strengthen our brothers. I pray in your worthy name, amen.